Hi, my name is Jonathan, and this is Relatable. So, welcome to Relatable. Uh, you are the first um, person that I'm doing a like Skype call with, so hopefully like the sound quality and stuff is good. Um, if not, we'll have to figure something out, um, but I, th- I think we'll be fine. Um, but uh, thank you uh, for coming on. Um, uh, oh, thank today, you. I'm talking with uh, my friend Joa, um, and Joa, we actually know each other um, because of my friend Nixon, who I went to college with, and um, I met you, when did we meet? A couple of years ago at my sister's wedding, or was it like... Is it me or Jason? No. Well, I mean, I met Jason, like, back in yeah, college. Yeah, because right? you came to visit, was it in 2016 or 15? 15 or 16, either one of those years. And you came to visit, and we were doing our floors. Was it around Christmas? And I think it was after Christmas. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So in 2015, yeah, okay. I came for my dad's birthday, um... And it was like in January, and I and yes. that's where we met. And then we went out and we had dinner or whatever, and um, and I met you, and I thought you were pretty interesting, and um, and now fast forward down the line, um, you and Nixon just got engaged. Um, yes, we did. Surprise me. We had a five year plan, so he kind of threw me off, yes. but uh, lucky for him, I said yes. Yes. Apparently, there's a lot of engagements going on in um, my podcast. Um, people are, like, committing their lives, and I'm over here single. But that's fine. Um, so let's talk about um, you, and let's just go back um, to the beginning. Um, let's talk about where where did you come from? Uh, where are you from? And tell me a little bit about you and growing up and your family. Yeah, sure. Uh, I am originally from Lafayette, Louisiana, which is Acadian Cajun culture. Uh, I was born in 1984. Um, So Lafayette is like south central of Louisiana. Um, It's sort of like not into the bayou, but sort of the bayou. Um, So I was pretty much raised uh, there all my life. we lived in a tiny little city called Cairncrow, uh, which was like maybe 10, 15 minutes outside of Lafayette. Um, what's interesting is that I was raised in two complete culture, different cultures. Uh, my father is African-American and my mother is Caucasian. And uh, it's kind of funny because I don't look like I am African American at all. Um, nobody would suspect it <laughs> unless I tell them. And then, of course, they always like, no way, you know, prove it to me. I'm like, oh, well, how am I supposed to prove it to you? Whatever. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it's, yeah. Um, so I was, you know, raised in sort of those two worlds where. I really never saw color. Um, I just saw culture and kind of what um, flowed in my blood. Um, So, you know, when people talk about, you know, um, the blacks or the whites, I just, it doesn't hit me until when I see, you know, politics or whatever, and I'm like, oh, you know, well, 
I have a different view of that. Um, yeah, I was basically um, yeah raised in that lifestyle. Okay, and then so I'm sure they've they've no noticed um, if they're if they're listening. So there's like a little bit of you ha- you 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 sound different. Uh, so do you want to talk about about that briefly? Yeah, I am hearing impaired, so I only have 45% of hearing. Um, so I was also raised in deaf culture, which is um, quite interesting. Uh, my mother um, and my family really didn't know sign language at all, so uh, she found out that I, I was not responding as I should be um, when I was three. Uh, and we were actually living in New York during that time for a little while. And my mother sent me to a doctor, of course, and they found out that I had a, a hearing impairment. And in the city that we lived, there was a deaf school. So they went ahead and sent me to um, the deaf school at age three. And I started learning sign language. Um, and during that time period, um, you know, my mother didn't learn sign language. She, um, none of my family did because the doctors were like, no, he needs to learn how to live in the hearing world as well. My mother regrets that. She wished that she had learned sign language as well mm-hmm. because she missed um, a part of that life that I lived in the deaf culture. Mm-hmm. Um, why she just didn't pick it up and learn it, I don't know, but I won't blame her for that. Yeah. Um, which is funny because when you actually came here, because um, you guys came to visit at the end of, well, at the end of the summer in 2016, um, I introduced you to a couple of my friends, Val and Tyler, who were on an episode a couple day or a couple episodes ago. And Val is a deaf studies major, so I knew that you guys would at least have something to talk about or whatever. And for a while, when you guys like met up and we were playing board games. You just sat there and were signing across the table, like laughing at, at us. I don't know if you're talking about us or whatever you were talking about, but you know, it's it's definitely an interesting environment to be in. When you know, I was sitting there with Nixon and Tyler, and we're having a conversation, but you guys are sitting across from us having a completely different conversation in silence. And then I remember looking up at at Nixon and Tyler and being like, I think they're talking about us. Because they're like laughing and 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 such, and we you know I don't know what you guys were talking about, but you guys you and you and Tyler or you and Val seemed to connect really well. So I was like, okay, that's another good sign. Like his he's good for Nixon, but he's also like really good at making friends with like other people too. So so yeah, that was cool. Yeah, we I think we were talking about Charles just a little bit. <laughs> well, that's cool. Um, so. So going from there, so go, so that was at a young age, and you grew up, and you know how how difficult was like school and going through life. When I went to school, we I was a part of a deaf program, okay, which was in, established in a uh, hearing school, so a hearing public school. Um, so I basically spent from first grade to my senior year in that deaf program. And what's really awesome is that um, since first grade, I have friends that I basically was in the same class with from first grade to uh, um, my senior year. And we had interpreters 
in our classes. Um, so that helped me out a lot because even though I can still hear somewhat, I miss out on things. Mm -hmm. um, maybe somebody whispered or spoke too low, and I'm like, wait, what? Um, which can be funny because sometimes I hear things entirely different from what they said. Yeah. Um, so that has always been um, a great influence in helping me learn. Um, and then, of course, I also developed close friendships with my interpreters. They were awesome people. Um, I mean, I still know some interpreters from elementary school. Um, you know, yeah, it's it was it was really awesome. Um, as learning, um, it was a challenge. You know, um, I have a little uh, bit of a learning disability, and so uh, basically, I had to learn differently than um, other students, um, you know, but it didn't stop me from, you know, uh, having a great education in the public school mm -hmm. system in Lafayette, Louisiana. So, so other than your family, when you were growing up, did you have like a support system in like religion or? Uh, growing up, um, I was surrounded by a lot of um, Catholic influence. Um, so my whole family, you know, was born and raised Catholic. Uh, it's a very heavy, um, inf influential uh, Catholic faith in South Louisiana. Um, so growing up, you know, you go to church every Sunday, but um, towards um, middle and high school, uh, in my parish, you know, there's youth groups. So I really um, became involved in um, youth groups. Uh, so every two weeks we'd have youth group, but you know that was an influence of giving me something to kind of attach to, uh, in a way that kind of gives me a identity as a Catholic. Um, you know, we did things. I got to know people that had the same interest, um, and then I had adults that were always supportive. Um, anything that we need to talk about. Um, as I look back, you know, it was a way to kind of hide as well um, from who I really was. You know, when you're, when you're Catholic, you have to follow all these rules and all these dogmas, and, you know, that's basically how I did. You know, my grandmother, she was, you know, this very... Um, conservative, um, Cajun Catholic, you know, so, but at the same time, she was a great influence on, you know, teaching me about my faith, uh, you know, um, she was one of those, um, people that prayed the rosary every morning with her morning coffee, um, so, you know, just seeing that was a really deep influence, um, but it was on both side of my parents' families, you know, mm -hmm. That was all I knew was the Catholic faith. We didn't question it, you know. We did what, you know, the Catholic Church said during that time. Yeah. And then after, so as you grew up, after you went to, you know, school and stuff, what was your next, like, what was your step after finishing school? Well, you know, during high school, I think every Catholic will, you know, testify to this, that you always ask the question, hey, have you ever thought about becoming a priest? Or, hey, have you ever thought about becoming a nun? Um, you know, that question always lingers throughout your, you know, school years. Um, but 
I really took interest in the priesthood because I felt that I wanted to do good to society. But then there was another part of kind of scared of who I was. Um, I knew something was different about me. Uh, you know, I was attracted to guys, and that was a no-no. Um, but I think during, you know, the late 1990s and the early 2000s, um, gay culture was still, you know, really growing, and, you know, the LGBTQ community was still trying to develop uh, who they were. So I really didn't have the resources or, you know, to be able to really talk to people mm -hmm. about it. Um, you know, it was, in my family, it, it really wasn't spoken of. Mm -hmm. It was unheard of. Growing up in school-wise, you know, if you hear the word gay, it was really bad. Um, you know, I was teased that I was, you know, that I was gay, but I wasn't going to come out and say anything about it. So I think um, seeking the priesthood gave me a way to escape a little bit of people kind of asked me why are you single or why don't you go on dates? I'm like, oh, I'm discerning the priesthood. So that kind of gave people the, oh, well, he's discerning the priesthood, so the dating thing is out, yeah. you know. So that was kind of easier to deal with. And it was easier to deal with my family as well. When they asked me, hey, why aren't you interested in dating why are you not doing this you know oh i'm discerning the priesthood yeah oh so that gives a whole new perspective of discernment in life yeah but i think also too um going through a lot in life you know i'm a sexual abuse survivor so you know holding all that pain and that, you know, festering wounds in me, mm -hmm. I needed to escape somehow, too. And it's really weird how my thinking process was. But, you know, again, I felt that what I went through, I wanted to do good to society. Yeah. When did you first know you were different? And, you know, being already, you know, religious, and you have this you know, hearing issue and you're going through these challenges, did you ever feel at a point like, oh, I'm dealing with this and then now I have this stacked on top and then I have this other stacked on top? Did, was it ever like a lot? Like, did you ever have like those moments of, of thinking like, why me? Like, why is it all piling in on me? Like, why do, why, why am I having to go through this? Yes. Um, you know, I have to say something humorous. You know, when I first knew that I was gay, it was in second grade. Mm -hmm. um, I remember watching the first Power Rangers episode <laughs> uh, in second grade, and I saw Billy, the Blue Ranger. Uh -huh. um, I was very attracted who, to who Billy. Who was gay, by the way, in real Yes, way. and it was really, really interesting. And then, and then of course... Going through the whole Power Rangers, you know, throughout the years, I was just totally attracted to Billy, but I didn't understand until later. I was like, oh, that's why I was attracted to him. Yeah. But dealing with homosexuality, being gay, I just didn't speak about it. 
Um, so that was the, the, the first issue of growing up. The second issue of growing up was um, being sexually abused by my, by my own father. Um, that was very, very difficult. It happened when I was 15 years old. Um, and it was something that just kind of tore me up. So being gay, hiding that, being sexually abused, hiding that, and also, you know, being teased in middle school and high school at times, mm -hmm. you know, that's a third thing being added onto that. Um, having difficulty in school and having school being a challenge in learning, that mm -hmm. was a difficulty. Having an impairment, that was a difficulty. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you have all these traumas added onto you, and you're not talking about it. You don't know who to talk to. And it caused me to just basically stay at home a lot. Uh, my mom was single um, after, actually, when I turned 16, she divorced my father, which was a, a relief. Um, but I had five siblings at home. And so I helped my mother a lot. So I didn't go out and, you know, do normal teenage stuff as I, um, as I should have have. Um, I know there were some sports that I wanted to play, but my mother, you know, she needed me home taking care of the kids. But psychologically, I was basically depressed. I was lonely. Um, there was a point when I had, when I was 17 years old, that I wanted to basically commit suicide. Um, and I kind of decided not to. When I had those, the pills in my hand, um, my my siblings were on certain medications, and so I knew that if I can just take all that and just go to bed, I wouldn't have to wake up in the morning. Um, but I I don't know what stopped me. I just decided not to. I think it was my brother. Um, my brother and I shared, shared the same room and the same bed. So I think thinking about my brother, I just didn't want him to find a dead body uh, mm -hmm. next to him. Uh, as gruesome as that is um but no i mean i i, I think i think it, that's a common you know even i mean you obviously i mean there's a lot of trauma in your situation but i feel like even being gay like there's multiple times that like you're just dealing with it and admitting it to yourself where you think maybe this is just an out like maybe this is my opportunity to just like get out and not even and th not even think about it and that's i i know that's horrible to say but it's just something that comes up even if you're never going to act on it you're just mm -hmm. it's there and to even have to make it like to your to have your mind say that's okay to have that thought is horrible it's an issue and i think back then when i was 17 we didn't have the support that we needed um, not like today. Today, people know. They're learning. They're making resources available. Um, you know, but going back to faith, I think religion, again, helped me out in a way that I can channel some of this. Um, you know, yeah, so around, you know, 17 and after, after that whole mindset episode that I had, Religion was sort of my um, safety net. It was something that I kind of grasped onto. 
I was a strong believer in Jesus. I felt that I had a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would go to the chapel often. Um, part of it was to get away from home, but part of it too was to be with God. Um, and in high school, I, I belonged to a youth group, uh, St. Ed, Ed's youth group. And the youth group leader, uh, Darlene, was absolutely amazing. Um, of course, she had no idea, really, the depth of what was going on, but she kind of knew I struggled. So, you know, she always, you know, pulled me aside. How are you doing? I would always talk to her in her office. You know, she was present in a way that I, I needed somebody. Um, and, of course, during that time period, I was really discerning the seminary, um, becoming a priest, um, it gave me a leeway to be somebody because I didn't know who I was. Mm -hmm. I didn't know who I was going to be. And I was too afraid to come out to be that person that, you know, uh, I should be. So being a priest would give me an an identity, um, make me feel um, in control make me feel um, like I can be somebody good. Mm -hmm. And I think back then I didn't feel like I was a good person. So I felt the seminary would make me a good person, which was ridiculous because I was an absolutely brave and good person. I just didn't know. So after high school, I worked a bit. Uh, For about a year, I worked at a grocery store. And then I entered seminary in 2006. So I graduated in 2004 and then I uh, took a year off and I, yeah, I went into seminary in 2006. Um, I, the vocation director during that time, uh, kind of threw the application at me and he said, fill it out and, you know, send it back to me and we'll get you started in the process of entering in the seminary. So it's like, okay. So I was pretty excited. Um, you know, again, I had a good, my intentions were good mm-hmm. to enter seminary. Um, I was pretty excited. My mother was excited. My grandmother was excited. Um, you know, I went visit the seminary. I thought it was pretty awesome. It was St. Joseph Seminary College. It was uh, ran by the Benedictine monks. That was established in Covington, Louisiana in 1908, and their ministry was basically teaching seminarians um, to be educated towards the priesthood. So how long were you there, and of all the things that you learned there, I'm sure you still involve some of them on your daily life, because I feel like you're you're still connected to your your faith. Am I correct? Yes. Uh, so when I entered seminary, there was about 80 um, guys there. Uh, St. Joseph Seminary College was a minor seminary, which means that you basically still um, go through your normal um, courses of classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was geared towards uh, liberal arts and philosophy. So everybody studied that. 
And what is uh, what that is supposed to do is prepare you towards major seminary for theology. So the minor seminary focused on human, spiritual, intellectual, and pastoral formation. So they focus on those four things in order to prepare you to be a priest one day. Um, so when I went in 2006, basically, um, I still had all my traumas from the past. I still had all my issues. So nothing left me. Um, and going into that environment of 80 other men was quite interesting because everybody had their own issues. When I first entered, I was basically very shy. I kind of stayed in my own room. Um, you know, I was very lonely. Mm -hmm. I had, uh, I was overweight. I didn't like myself. It was just, it was hard. Mm -hmm. Was I happy? Yes, I was happy to be in the seminary. Um, so it took me about a semester to adjust to seminary life. When I started to adjust to seminary life, I started making uh, very close friends um, in my dorm area. We had our own dorm rooms. So basically, I got to start to know people. Um, there were some of the uh, monks uh, that were uh, in charge of, you know, like a dean of students, uh, some were teachers. Um, we had uh, lay teachers. Uh, some, uh, we, had, you know, we had one professor that was an atheist. He taught biology. Okay. We had uh, one professor that was a Mormon. Uh, our librarian in the seminary was Jewish. So we had kind of like a little mixture mm -hmm. of um, professors because basically, you know, you're teaching a normal class uh, like biology. Everybody has to have biology. Yeah. Yeah, so it was um, quite interesting. Uh, I've gotten to know the monks as well because St. Joseph Abbey was right next to the seminary. So I got to know the monks very well, and I started to get to know the, um, Bene the kind of the Benedictine spirituality okay. um, under the rule of St. Benedict. So I really kind of became... Uh, to have a begin to have an understanding of that type of spirituality, which that was already being attractive to me. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically, you know, seminary life was just uh, the beginning of learning who I was. You you said like you know your traumas don't leave you, so how do you deal with them in there? It was very complicated. Um, the first issue that I dealt with was being gay when I was in a seminary, mm -hmm. um, and that was very difficult. Uh, there were some seminarians that I was um, attracted to, and I just didn't. You know how do you how do you deal with that when your life is all messy? And plus, when you're in a seminary and you can't come out publicly, you know there's uh, again doctrines and theologies and the catechism that you have to follow, um, there was always a great fear that somebody would find out that you were gay. 
because, you know, there are some guys who are sort of on gay witch hunting, you know, that, you know, they, if they, if they thought you were gay, they would, you know, tell somebody, and it was just always that, 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 that fear. Um, and, and sorry, what would happen if, if they did find out? Basically, you would be ousted out. Um, now, spiritual directors, I ha- every seminarian had a spiritual director in the process of seminary. And spiritual direction was just talking about your spiritual life with, you know, uh, with the director about God, about your life, you know, how does God fit into it. Um, my spiritual director knew I was gay. That was like after... A year I was at the seminary, I told my spiritual director, but it was very awkward. It's like they didn't really know how to kind of work with it and deal with it. You know, they're like, oh, well, just keep it to yourself. Mm, okay. Um, you know, that was kind of like a hush, hush, secret thing. But I started making very close friends uh, in my freshman year. Um, after my freshman year, my sophomore year was the year that I kind of really began to, um, figure out a little bit of my messiness. So I was really close with one of my friends and every once in a while I would have these breakdowns and, you know, nobody ever thought to say, hey, go see a counselor. Yeah. You know, it was always, oh, pray about it or speak to your spiritual director or, you know, but again, you hold everything in and it's just pastoral formation and the human formation just basically sucked because it wasn't authentic, yeah. you know, and, excuse my, my Yiddish, but it was fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I was speaking to a friend of mine uh, one day in my sophomore year, and there was this guy that I was really attracted to, and I just didn't know how to handle it anymore. And I had mentioned something about liking guys in our conversation. And my friend was sitting on his bed, and he just got up, and he was like, wait, what? Are you gay? And that was the first time that I admitted to myself that I was gay. And I broke down crying. And my friend, um, you know, told me that he was gay. And then I found out there was this gay clique in the seminary, which I didn't even know existed. <laughs> so it was, it was, you know, um, a blessing at the same time because then I began to understand I wasn't alone. Yeah. So, you know, I, I began to find out a lot of my friends in a seminary were gay, and I began to understand that a majority of the guys in seminary was gay. So, you know, either they were running for themselves, some of them really wanted to be priests, um, but when you're in your early 20s, um, even, you know, we had some guys who were 16 in seminary, 17 and 18 in seminary, yeah. you're still growing up. You're still learning who you are. So it was fair enough for me to admit that I was gay. It was fair enough for me to go through that process. Um, so I just, we basically kept that to ourselves, except when we got together. Um, you know, we had a dean of students that was a complete asshole. Uh, I think he was miserable in life. Uh, I think some of us knew that. 
uh, he was a, uh, a monk, a Benedictine, um, and, you know, there were a few other people, too, that just kind of, I just questioned, you know, but who I was to question, I was, you know, fucked up as well. Yeah. Um, you know, but after my junior, after my junior year of, well, actually, it was during my, it was during my junior year, um, I ended up falling in love with a guy, uh, he was from Mexico, and we dated. So, Wait, if where, you can where was this guy? This guy was uh, from Austin, Texas, and he was originally from Mexico. So, so you he were was, in school together? Yeah, school oh. together, yes, yes. Um, so he was studying for the Diocese of Austin, Texas, and he's a priest now, from, uh, from what, I, what I know. Um, but yeah, we dated for several months, and our relationship was very hidden. Um, I, I think there were a few people who sort of figure it out, but couldn't prove it. Um, but it was probably one of the most intense relationships that I have been in, and that was really my first relationship, gay relationship. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would bring my Latin books to his dorm, you know, having people think we're going to study together, which was bullshit because, you know, we'll go fuck and, you know, talk and do all these things that a person does in a relationship. Yeah. Um, and after a few months, he broke it off um, because he wanted to continue in seminary. He was a year above me. And so he basically wanted to graduate and move on to major seminary. So... I didn't fault him for that. Um, I don't think I was extremely happy mm-hmm. with it. You know, I originally wanted to leave, and he didn't, and I was like, whatever. Um, so it, our communication was, you know, not so well, too. So basically, we broke up. Um, you know, of course, there's always kind of dramas in the seminary, but I decided to join the Benedictine Monastery, which was right next door. So I, uh, you know, I knew the vocation director for the monastery, and I made the decision to join the abbey, uh, which is like, what? You know, but I think, you know, I was attracted to the Benedictine lifestyle, and I thought being a monk would be pretty cool. Uh, when I went back home for summer break, uh, before I entered the monastery, uh, I went home, and my mother revealed to me that my sister was abused and uh, by my father. And then I also came out with my abuse. So I dealt with, you know, the whole gay thing, being gay, um, and now I'm dealing with my abuse. So when my abuse was revealed... Everything about me basically just crashed. It shattered. I didn't know who I was anymore. Um, My mother was torn. She was brokenhearted. She had, you know, two kids that were abused by a man that she trusted, you know, um, being married to for 18 years before she got divorced, years uh, before that. And, uh, you know, she she didn't know what to do. Um, But... 
of course, being a mother, she fought back. Uh, she was able to get us the resources that we needed. I remember, you know, sitting at the sexual abuse center in Lafayette for the first time, crying. Um, you know, I was just in a lot of pain because I didn't, I didn't know where to start. You know, um, so I spent basically the whole summer in intense counseling sessions, um, and then after the summer, I decided to go ahead and continue into to enter the monastery. Um, the abbot knew what I, what was going on, so did the, the uh, vocation director. Um, knew a lot of what what had happened, so there were understanding. I don't exactly know if they um, knew how to deal with it. You know, of course, the Catholic Church just doesn't deal with sexual abuse very well. Um, you know, they set all these resources and programs now today, but I still feel like it's a little too late for that. Yeah. Um, but I, so I spent three years in seminary, and I spent pretty much, I think it's said four to five years in the monastery. I was very happy in the monastery. Um, you know, it, as crazy as it seemed, being cloistered gave me the ability to heal and to learn from and to learn about myself. Um, I was more open to being gay. Of course, they always told me, "Don't tell people, keep it to yourself." But, honey, people recognize a queen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in a, a, a monastic habit, so I told that thing like a drag queen, hon. Um, so, you know, I was, you know, I tried to be as authentic as I could be, but it was difficult. Um, there were about 40 monks there. Um, the youngest was 23, and the oldest was 18. 88? I think Father Paul was the, um, 80 years old. Well, he was, yeah, I was about 89. I, I, I'm probably wrong, but that's just my guess. But I spent, um, a good amount of those years learning about other monks. Um, you know, I really established good relationships with monks, um, there. Uh, some were very angry, um, and some were assholes. Um, unfortunately, that's the reality of life. Uh, some of the older monks were in the monastery uh, since they were like 13 or 14 years old. So they never had a life. That's all they knew. So when being an asshole just didn't surprise me. I was like, well, you know, that's, if that's a life that you basically knew, then I can't blame you for that. Yeah. Um, but... There was one monk, in, um, you know, uh, that I really uh, grew close to. Um, and he, he spent 30 years out in the world. Uh, you know, he, um, he, he was in seminary when he was very young. Uh, and he was in a monastery. Then he, de he decided to leave. So he spent 30 years out in the world. And he was openly gay. You know, he had relationships. And he just decided that being in a monastery was his happiest you know, and that's where he felt peaceful. 
And he basically taught me a lot. You know, it's hard to grow up in a monastery. It's hard to really learn about yourself. So he assisted me in really understanding um, what I need to know in life. Um, the, the reality. Um, because in that kind of world, when you're so cloistered, you know, you can easily not live in reality. And you shouldn't have to do that. So basically, I spent a few months as a postulant, which means you're seeking to enter a monastery, uh, but you're not fully incorporated into the monastery. Um, and then I spent a year in novitiate, which is a year of formation and training before vows. So you take um, you know classes on the rule of Saint Benedict, you take uh, monastic history, you take history on the Benedictine life. You take uh, chanting classes, um, you know, you, all those things are to help you to become a monk. Um, the three vows that a monk takes is conversion, um, stability, and fidelity to monastic life. And, you know, of course, you take lessons in all those three things. Um, that you're going to profess to and live for the rest of your life. Um, after that year, um, the community has to vote you into uh, making first profession. So I was voted into the community. So I spent basically almost three years as a first professed monk. Um, when I became a monk, I took the name of Brother Joachim and I received the monastic habit. Uh, and after that, I went back to school part-time, and then I worked it as well um, in the casket woodshop. So we had um, different ministries on our property, so we didn't go out. We stayed on the property. So we had a bakery, we had a gift shop, we had the seminary, and we had the casket woodshop. Uh, so that's what I did, and I did a little bit in the gift shop as well. Um, during my time in the monastery, like I said, I began to form close relationships with monks, but it was also a challenge. Um, I began to disagree with some of the teachings of the church, um, and the monastery didn't like that. They did not like that whatsoever. Um, I also think the vocation director, or the, uh, well, the novice master, that's what we call it, the, um, the person, the monk who was in charge of our formation, um, didn't have a grasp on how to deal with the human aspect of young men entering the monastery. Um, of course, I had a whole bunch of issues, and so we're bunk heads a lot. And I think part of it was me, but a lot of it was just a craziness on, you know... Um, you represent the Abbey, and this is how you should be. And <coughs> I wasn't sure if I could uh, do that anymore. Um, and so we would always have issues all the time. There was um, another person in formation that I wasn't getting along with. So there was a lot of games being played. And the Abbot basically didn't do anything about it. Every time I told him, he would just basically ignore the issue. Um, they also had the um, 
they did this thing where they put people on pedestals. And it's very common for the Catholic Church to do that, especially in monasteries, to put people on pedestals. And I was, it was hurtful because it made me feel that there were some monks that were in formation that were more important than others, and it should never have happened. Um, you know, so again, you know, you go through disagreements and all that. Um, there were some monks who left um, during that time period as well, which was very... It was hard because you grow close to people and you see them leave and you're by yourself. Uh, I went to the Abbot, I think it was in my second year or my third year. And I basically told them, look, I need to go see a psychologist. I need, I need help. And so he was able to help me find a psychologist. So I spent about a year seeing a psychologist. And I was very angry. I was a very angry person. And there was a lot of angry people in the monastery. Um, you know, so I did that for a year. Just learning, again, how to be me, how, how to be my true self. And the monks wouldn't let me do that. So it came to a period where the novice master called me into his office and said basically, either you leave or I'll kick you out because I have the power. So the novice master has a so say in your formation and it doesn't matter if the community, the community votes you in or not. If the novice master feels you're not fit for the life, he can basically oust you out. And so, Hearing that from him, of course, angered me, but it also scared me because it gave me no choice but to leave because I didn't want to be kicked out. Mm -hmm. um, so I went away for about a week to another monastery just to get away and to think. And I spent a week um, back in Lafayette at a little monastery. And... I came back to Covington, Louisiana, and uh, I told the abbot that I'm leaving. Um, that is probably one of the scariest things ever. Um, I had a priest friend, and uh, after two weeks, he came and got me. Saying goodbye to a place that um, I was so stabilized at was heartbreaking. I left in tears. Um, I was told to leave during Mass, so I left during Mass. Um, I remember, you know, I remember entering and telling myself I wasn't, the only way that I was going to leave was in a casket and being buried in the back. And it wasn't this case. I was leaving alive and I was walking out the doors. So, I left, and I stayed with a priest uh, for about two months, and um, I firmly believe he was bipolar. He had a lot of issues. He would always remind me of how I was basically kind of homeless, and I was at his mercy. He was, again, he was an asshole, and he was, it's, this is just a, the, the, the reality of the Catholic Church, you know, where 
psychological issues are humongous. It's, it's a mess. And they're not dealing with it. And so that's why they constantly are having all these issues. You know, is it everybody? No, it's not everybody. But a majority of these priests are having issues and it's not being dealt with. But I, um, I stayed for two months and um, I had notified him that I, had, I was able to get an apartment. So I got an apartment um, and I said, look, in two weeks I'll be moving out because I have some stability now. And he basically decided, well, you got an apartment, you can go ahead and leave now. So he kicked me out. So my mom, of course, you know, was like, I can't believe this, just come back home. So I did. I, I stayed at my parents' house, which, you know, everybody knows when you stay with your parents, it can, it can be tough. Um, because, you know, my mother and I are so different. Mm -hmm. And so after two weeks, I was ready to get out. Um, but she kind of helped me as well to get established. My grandmother helped me get established. It was, um, it was extremely depressing. And it was hard because I never paid bills. I never lived on my own. I really didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I come from living with 40 people and now I'm living by myself, having to take care of things by myself. Um, so I was able to actually get a job working with at-risk kids, and then I got a part-time job at JCPenney's, and then with Delta Airlines later. But throughout those three years before I moved into Kansas City, I went through a majority of depression. And, you know, I just didn't know what to do. I had a lot of friends who abandoned me um, when I left the monastery. I had no connections to anybody anymore. Um, you know, I had one priest who I always still consider him as my spiritual father. He supported me as much as he can. But, you know, I went through a severe depression that led to, again, thoughts of intense suicide. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and of course, I became a hoe, you know, I slept around. You know, and I think people understand that, you know, you've been celibate for how many years, you know, now, and you're trying to find yourself, and, you know, thanks to that one person introduced me to Grindr, uh, you know, it, it was difficult, I, you know, it's just trying to stabilize again and, and figure out your shit, you know, it's, it's hard, but... I knew my resources. I was able to seek counseling and, um, you know, um, before I moved to Kansas City, about a couple of months before that, uh, I got a text message on Facebook. And uh, it was Nixon, Jason, Jason Nixon. And it was, it was really at a perfect time when I needed somebody. And we started talking back and forth and we started talking on the phone. And I, during that time, I was working um, full-time with Delta, Delta Airlines. And so I flew for free on standby. And so I said, hey, why don't I just come visit you in Kansas City? Um, and so I had that planned. I got cold feet. So I wasn't going to go. And Jason basically kind of went off on me on the phone. 
And he was like, you put me through all the... Yes, as he does. And he was like, you put me through this. You know, you need to communicate to me of why you're doing this. And of course, I broke down because I was scared. And, you know, it's that whole trust issue. And so after we talked it out, I decided to go ahead and go visit him. So I visited him. And um, our first time seeing each other was... uh, sort of magical, you know, we were, we were both nervous, like, oh, you know, crap, you know, is it really going to be like we think it is? And uh, it was, it was exactly what we uh, expected it to be. And um, so I flew almost every weekend to Kansas City to be with him. And after a few months, uh, we decided to uh, make a commitment. And I basically got rid of a whole bunch of my stuff. Hopped in my car. I told my mother, bye. Because I wanted to get everything to stay of Louisiana as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I drove up. And I moved in with Jason. And we're now engaged. Long story short. Long story short. <laughs> well, good. Um, and, and you're in school? And you're working right now? Y- yes, I'm actually in school. I... Uh, I'm in Columbia College, and I'm studying criminal justice. Uh, I graduate in December, and I uh, currently work at a homeless uh, shelter called Restart. Uh, So basically, I work with homeless youth. So, yeah, we basically uh, answer a hotline phone call 24 hours. um, It's always open. Uh, We deal with a lot of youth that come off the streets, um... We deal a lot of uh, with LGBT homeless youth as well. Um, we, uh, of course, we deal with crisis intervention, suicide intervention, and all those yeah. things that are um, an issue in, in today's homeless youth. Good. So that like helping in your heart is still there. You're actually still giving back. So you're doing good. Absolutely, and that is one of the things that I, I feel like young Catholic. Um, people should realize is that you don't have to be a priest, you don't have to be a monk, you don't have to be a nun to do these amazing things in this world. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't even have to be Catholic to be a good person. Um, You know, and once you realize that, then you're more free to be your authentic true self. And when you're your authentic true self, I feel like you are able to do more good in society. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a cool story. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for letting me share. Of course. Um, I think that there's a lot of relatable stuff in there. And, you know, there's some information that people can pull out and, and use. And, 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 it, and yeah, it, it was awesome. So um, I want to say thank you again. If you, I feel like there's, there's more stories in there that you, you oh, touched yeah. on that we can, we can go back in the future. Um, which we will go back in the future. Um, but yes, thank you again for joining us. Well, thank you. Yes. Yes. All right. Well, um, this is Jonathan. I'm signing off. <laughs>